Sorry, just make sure I didn't bump this around too much. Good morning. Uh, my name is Sean Kappas. Uh, I uh, have served in the past as an elder here at River Hills Community Church. And uh, each year we have a church improvement series where we focus on one or more of our core values. Uh, this year we're just focusing on one, which is as follows. We believe that without Christ, we can do nothing. Therefore, a growing devotion to both corporate and personal prayer is vital. And so, as we consider the circumstances of this psalm, Psalm 73, which Mike just read for us, I hope that we will see our need as well as the good God that we go to when we pray. And so with that, please join me in prayer. God, we know that you are good to Israel, or you're good to you. You, have, you were good to Israel. You are good to your people. Um, we we sang earlier about how Christ is our hope in life and death, regardless of the stormy trials that we see, um, and regardless of any accomplishments that we may seem to have ourselves. And so I pray that we might grow in our dependence on you. I pray that this psalm here today in its rich words might bless us, cause us to run to you as our refuge and our hope and our strength. And I pray that you would help me to get out of the way so that your word might be clear. Um, And I pray that you would be pleased to have your people be drawn more to you in love and in faith here today. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I'll pose a question to you, or a series of questions perhaps. How do you feel when you see politicians who are going into an election season and they, their, their main tactics for gaining office are bad-mouthing and slandering, or you hear about how they're receiving questionable benefits from being in office? Or perhaps you see a professional athlete who um, merely gets a slap on the wrist for doing something that would have destroyed their career or their home life because they're worth millions of dollars? Or what do you do, maybe closer to home, if a coworker gets promoted instead of you because they successfully took credit for someone else's work? And then as I was writing this next thing, it's just a weird world we live in. You hear a classmate who's bragging that ChatGPT wrote their essay for them you did the work yourself and they got a better grade than you did. Or you're a kid and your parents believe your siblings lies even though you told the truth. Do you wonder why God allows people who lie, cheat, and steal to be successful, sometimes far beyond those who do what is good in his eyes? Perhaps you wonder if being faithful to him is worth it. Perhaps they want what you have but you haven't gotten it by following God's means. Even if you haven't found yourself in this circumstance, or maybe not to the degree that Asaph finds himself in this psalm, I expect that one day you will. And so I think it is helpful that this psalm takes us on a journey to work through these emotions. Um, What you've probably realized from Mike reading Psalm 73 is that this was not a simple process. So if you don't already have your Bible open, I would encourage you to turn to Psalm 73. The first couple verses are on page 485. The Bible's underneath the chairs. Most of the psalm is on page 486. And so 
uh, the Holy Spirit speaks through Asaph in this psalm to demonstrate that God is good to his people and it is good to be near him. And he starts out, though, by seemingly arguing the opposite as he first deals with the unsettling fact that the prosperity of the wicked may threaten your faith. And so the psalm begins seemingly pleasantly enough. Truly God is Israel. Sorry, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so, and then, so Asaph says it's not just ethnic Israel, people who could say, you know, I know things about God, I go to the temple. He says, he qualifies it further, those who are pure in heart. Uh, not simply those who have this head knowledge about God, but those who are seeking to live for him. And this seems ordinary enough if you think about it in the context of the Bible. It's a common way that God, uh, that the psalmists talk about themselves, not saying that they are perfect, but they are people who seek to live as God's covenant people, keeping his covenant and loving him. And he has promised that for those who do keep his covenant, he will bless them. However, the psalm very immediately does not continue in what seems like a happy direction. It says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so the stakes are raised sky high immediately. Uh, Asaph paints imagery of him nearly falling to his death. Now, ESV kind of maybe doesn't make this as apparent as other translations, but if you look at some other translations, it it really heightens the fact that it looks like someone's slipping, they're losing their foothold when they're climbing and falling. It's not just slipping and like stumbling and picking yourself back up again. Um, if you want any evidence of that, though, just clearly within the text, you could look down again at verse 13, where Asaph's conclusion eventually becomes, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And so he's saying that what follows in these verses caused him to question his faith and almost fall away from God. So this is the beginning of Psalm 73. Your Bible may say, or sorry, the book three of the Psalms. Psalm 73 is the first in it. The heading of your, uh, in your Bibles may say book three. And these Psalms in general deal with crises in life and crises of faith. Um, questions like, where is God while the wicked triumph, which we see in these? Uh, will God's unfaithful people return to him? And will God keep his promises? So many in this book, many of the Psalms in this book appear to be penned by Asaph, um, who David appointed as a chief musician in the temple in Second Chronicles 29.30. So he's not just some, some nobody, he's someone who is a spiritual leader within uh, the people of Israel. Some of them may have been written by his descendants uh, after the Babylonian exile. They're even noted in Ezra and Nehemiah, um, which we recently went through, as taking up their family duties, keeping in line with what the ancestor did when the people of Israel returned from exile. And so other than that, we don't really know anything about the circumstances of this psalm apart from what's in there, but I think that it's to our benefit because it tells us that the particulars are not nearly as important as the fact that even a prominent spiritual leader can still have deep struggles of faith. And so if you're coming here today and maybe you resonated with some of the things I said or you have in the past, uh, you're not 
I'll tell you that it is not something that makes you suddenly disqualified from being a Christian because you struggle with these things. Um, and so continuing on in verse 3, we see the crisis that, that, um, uh, that caused Asaph to start considering these things. He says, I was envious of the arrogant. So he doesn't mince any words. He just blatantly says, I broke the 10th commandment. I envied, I coveted. And it's not just that. I envied wicked people. And I envied the fact that they are prospering. And the word translated prosperity is the word shalom. You might, have be, you might be familiar with that. It's a Hebrew word thinking about peace, but it's not just a um, you know, feeling relaxed and at ease with yourself, but it, it carries us with it a sense of completeness, a sense of being not only in peace in your own heart, but primarily actually peace with God. And so what he's really driving at here is this is strange to me because the wicked seem to be the ones who are prospering, who are, almost seem like they have peace with God, and yet I am the one who is trying to have a pure heart to live righteously before you. Um, and so it seems wrong, it seems unfair, and he says, I'm envious, so he wants what they have. And so... I think that it's worth noting here, and actually, it was interesting, I didn't realize we were going to have a special announcement about this, that um, in our day and age, uh, it's not, that there's a common thing of humanity that we want to compare ourselves to others, but the age of technology that we live in, you can't go anywhere without experiencing advertising and marketing, um, and these cater to our sinful tendencies to envy and covet. So you might think about uh, the advertisements you see where they have sick, uh, successful, rich, good-looking people who say, you should have this thing. Don't you want to have this thing? Don't you want to be in the crowd of the people who have this thing? And then social media furthers this because what it promotes is people only putting the highlights of their life forward. And so it might make you think that the people that you see are people who live lives of ease, people who don't have to worry about the many difficulties that you have to deal with day to day. Their lives seem to be one highlight after another while you're barely keeping up with laundry or staying ahead of tasks at work. And so I say this because in some ways, not only are we predisposed as sinful humans, uh, we are also conditioned in our culture to compare our lack to someone else's abundance. It may even be that we're not just longing for something wrong or something wicked, but we are longing for something good in a wrong way, even something that a brother or a sister in Christ has. And it's common enough that it, it numbs us. I think that sometimes I tell myself, well, it's not envy. I'm just interested in that thing. Um, uh, but it's not, yeah, so obviously uh, it's not, uh, we're, we're quick to uh, tell ourselves things, and it's very foolish when you say them out loud, but how often, at least for me, it's still something that's sitting in my heart. And so, I think that nowadays we're actually even in more danger in some ways of what's happening to Asaph in this psalm. And so he continues on about what it looks like 
in their lives. He says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues or their tongue struts through the earth. So it's not just like they're, they're just a little better off. It's their head and shoulders succeeding beyond what Asaph feels he is. He paints a, a picture of total ease, lack of worry. And not only that, then they live healthy and they die a smooth and painless death. Um, they have enough food that they're fat. They're not wondering where their next meal is going to come from. And they don't seem to even get sickness or be plagued or stricken like the rest of us. And, um, and so whether this is because they're so rich that they just have everything taken care of or simply because it seems as if they're similar to everyone else besides their behavior, but troubles still pass them by, it seems unfair to Asaph because... Are they thankful to God? No, it's actually the opposite. They're um, setting their mouth against the heavens, their tongue struts through the earth. And so we don't really know, is Asaph exaggerating due, his, due to his frustration, right? As, as the wicked seem to be ascending in their prosperity, is he getting more and more frustrated, losing his grip on reality? Or maybe are they this prosperous? I think it's probably a bit of both. Um, one thing is clear, though. Their success has not taught them humble dependence and thankfulness to the Lord. Instead, they wear pride as a necklace. They wear violence as their garment. So it's, it's not something that they're hiding in their hearts. They're parading it on display for all to see, to say, this is the thing that I clothe myself in. This is the thing that I adorn myself with, is pride. And so... Uh, as they've had success in sinning, they've decided they like it. It might have started out as small and hidden sins, but now it's turning into, uh, here's, here's what I have, and here's how I managed to get it. Uh, this leads to an insatiable appetite for more and increases their boldness. And it gets to the point that they are openly malicious and they threaten oppressive evil as if they are superior. Now, uh, I think that uh, the word oppression is a word that's become popular in recent years. And I think that perhaps uh, it can, uh, I, I don't always know that it's used as helpfully as it can be. So I'm going to, to just want to point that out that we don't just gloss over what they're doing here. Um, what, what's happening here through oppression is the wicked are people who plot and scheme and devise ways to take advantage of those who will not use their tactics or who cannot fight them back. Um, for an example of this um, that we've recently gone through, you might think about in 1 Samuel. Samuel is a godly man, but he appoints his sons to be judges after him. And through taking it in their office, Instead of faithfully administering justice according to God's law, they take bribes and they distort justice to the point that the people of Israel complain and they say, your sons don't follow after you. They're taking advantage of us rather than being shepherds over us. Um, and uh, 
So even though they're removed from office for their oppressive behavior, in this psalm, it seems like the wicked are just continuing on and on. And they get to the point where they're saying that, that they're setting their mouths against the heavens. They're strutting with their tongues throughout all the earth. It's the earth is beneath them. The rest of people are beneath them. In fact, they're, now they're ascending. They're saying, who's God? I am the God of my own domain. I am the one who rules over things. Why would I need him when I'm getting all that I want through my own means, through my own power? And so um, we're continuing, we continue on and we see what happens as they behave this way. You see, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So Asaph laments that God lets the wicked continue to triumph. And we don't know here, you know, who are the wicked? Are they nations outside of Israel? who are prospering? Are they prominent people within Israel who are somehow escaping justice? Or is it the king? God and his king are conspicuously absent in the first half of this psalm. Even though the king is supposed to be his anointed one, the one who is administering justice. Um, we can see, actually, the previous psalm, Psalm 72, is a prayer, it says, from Solomon. Um, about how he's praying that God would bless the king to administer righteousness and justice and that he would rescue the, the, the weak and the powerless from oppression and violence. And yet in this psalm, God's earthly king is nowhere to be found. And so we see then what happens with this unchecked wickedness. It does not merely have the temporal consequences of someone who is being oppressed, having a miserable existence. It leads to um, eroding people's confidence in God and his goodness. Instead of, um, instead of finding fault in the wicked, God's people start to not find fault in the wicked, and instead they find fault in God. Um, they, they start questioning, is he really God at all? Does he know anything? The, 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 way, the way that this is... Um, this is constructed, it's saying, it's not just, um, does, is God omniscient? Does he know everything? It's really, does God know anything at all? And so uh, this can start, though, in small ways for everyone. Um, perhaps you start seeing how people lie, cheat, and steal, and slander to get ahead, and you think to yourself, you know, maybe a little white lie wouldn't hurt me here. Or um, my reputation's been damaged by that person, so perhaps I'll fire back, but I'll do it a little more subtly. Um, and maybe you get away with it. Maybe it feels good to get a little bit of revenge. And then you do a little bit more, and a little bit more, and the cycle feeds on itself. And this is going to lead you down one of two dangerous paths. Either you consider that being holy for God is not as necessary as it seems because suddenly you're being successful by not doing what God has commanded. Um, um, or 
Maybe he's not there at all. And pursuing him isn't worth your time. But at the root, both are finding God's ways as wanting and not something you can be content with. So Asaph says that though while others are driven from doubt to derision, the psalmist, he is driven from doubt to despair. Why have I done this? Was it really worth it? God, you said the one who is blessed is the one who follows you, not the one who openly mocks you and would cast you down from your throne if able. All in vain have I been one who is pure in heart, and you have not been good to me. The one who you should be rebuking is the wicked ones, and yet I feel like I am the one who is rebuked and stricken daily for following you. It seems to be a reversal of Psalm 2, which we read before the sermon. Whereas in that psalm, the wicked plotted in vain, and God simply laughs. Instead, the good are living for God in vain. His king, who is supposed to be his anointed one, who is sitting above the rulers of the earth, is absent. The wicked of the earth seem to have burst their bonds, um, and they are running amok. Perhaps you have been here before. You think either God is in the heavens and he's not really doing anything or could it simply be that he's not there at all? I think it's worth reiterating that this is a mature saint that we are hearing from. David appointed Asaph to be the song leader for God's people. So it's not like he just grabbed some guy off the street who's unstable in his faith. Um, He's someone who would know that Satan has great sway in the world. He has been tempting God's people. Um, There are wicked people all around. Um, He would know that God is often patient with the wicked, even when they seem to be triumphing. He would know about how Israel were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years under Pharaoh. And it was a commonly rehearsed theme. And so you know that God does not always work quickly to deliver his people. And yet there's a difference between facts that he can recite and how his heart is reacting. Perhaps the sin he is seeing is so egregious that even his knowledge of God's working in the past seems to be too distant or he's worn down from days, weeks, and years of suffering for righteousness' sake. Or it may just be that sometimes our hearts can get the better of us when we are at our weakest. There are times when reciting facts to yourself as cold, hard propositions just don't feel like enough. And the circumstances you are in feel so much nearer than the God who has made promises to his people. So the question is, now, where do you turn? Do you go off on your own or do you press deeper into God? So this psalm, like many, is a journey. It helps helps bring us along the path that Asaph took and all of its hardships and its hopelessness. So while we think about poetry as, um, you know, English poetry often ties things together through rhyme, Hebrew poetry often makes points through balance. So as we get to the center of the psalm, sometimes Hebrew poetry will point you to the center to say, here's the turning point, here's the a big thing that I want to draw your attention to. And I think Asaph is doing that here. Um, so this is how he discovers what it truly means that God is good to his people and is good to be near him. So he, while he started out with the fact that the prosperity of the wicked may threaten your faith, 
he realizes that God is a rock and a refuge forever. So he continues on, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Asaph knew that if he spoke out his troubles, everything that he had been thinking with no resolution, it would have caused devastation for more than just himself. I do not think it is an exaggeration here for him to say that he would have betrayed a generation if he had just simply said the words as a song leader in corporate worship, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. Even if maybe he did not 100% mean it, maybe if he was still wrestling with it, a spiritual leader of his standing saying this would have shaken the faith of much of the faithful of Israel. Imagine if an older Christian you knew and looked up to said something like this. It would be like the floor dropped out from under you. And so while I think that it's very beneficial that Asaph writes all these things down, I think it is also a caution to be cautious with our words about just bluntly saying everything that we are struggling with personally. However, one thing to note in this psalm is, especially as we continue on, the you and I of this psalm. So you can be encouraged that Asaph can say these things to God. And you can be certain of that because he recorded these words in this psalm. Even though he couldn't say them out loud as he was processing, he wrote them down and it is inspired, God-breathed, and God-approved scripture that, he, that these words are recorded for us. And that's because, thankfully, the story doesn't end here. Um, as he's wrestling with the strange fact that God allows so much wickedness to triumph in this fallen world, Asaph is exhausted with the thought of understanding. So he's, he's trying to process it, and he's coming to the end of himself, feeling like, I cannot do this. Interestingly, the word wearisome is the same word for trouble in verse 5. So he's troubled by the fact that the wicked don't have any troubles. Um, and, and in fact, it seems as if he has no hope of figuring out this puzzle until he went into the sanctuary of God and discerned the end of the wicked. So it's, he's not just trying, he's not managing to figure this thing out all under his own power. We don't know exactly what happened. Did he walk in, he saw the altar, and he remembered God is one who um, does truly hate sin. Um, or did he have a vision? Did he hear someone speaking God's promises? Maybe someone was just reading scripture um, and uh, maybe promises to indeed judge the wicked and reward the righteous? Or did he sing a song with God's people, even if he didn't feel it in his heart initially, um, but his heart was changed as he heard the saints singing and encouraging him? Um, whatever happened, it seems as if God opened his eyes to see something that halted his downward spiral. And so here's what he discerned. Truly you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now that seems 
Very different from the picture of the wicked in the first half of the psalm. Gone are the people who have long days with ease of prosperity, with simple, peaceful deaths. And said these are suddenly lives that are ended in ruin and terror. While their lives may appear long from our human perspective, it is short on the time scale of eternity. And so from that perspective, it seems that they disappear as quickly as you forget a dream often when you awake. It's not that God is sleeping himself, but God has clear purposes in delaying, arousing himself in judgment. Consider what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For the, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works on it that are done on it will be exposed. If God judged any of us immediately, in our wickedness prior to us trusting in Christ even, we would be ones destroyed in a moment. We would be the ones who are falling to ruin here. Um, Peter actually reiterates the temptation of verses 11 and 13 of this psalm when he says later on, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Asaph reflects on his own experiences and difficulties in getting through this in, this ne in the next verse. Um, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked, could be, you could, uh, pierced in heart is another translation, um, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Here Asaph confesses how his feelings got the better of him and caused him to sin against God. He does not mince words, and he does not uh, give a complimentary picture of himself. Um, as we are made in God's image, we are built with an innate yearning for justice. We don't always identify rightly what is just or unjust, but there's a there's a reason humans often react so viscerally to something that seems wrong or unfair. And so you can say that Asaph rightly identified that the wicked were prospering. So he's not wrong in identifying that that, is, uh, that, that, um, that they should not succeed because they are wicked. But he did not rightly react to it. Um, interestingly, the ESV here uses soul, but it's, this word is translated heart in the rest of the psalm, and a different word is used for when he says pricked in heart or pierced in heart. Um, in this verse, it literally means kidneys, and it's typically used in the psalms to talk about as a figure of speech for the deepest seed of affections. And so he's saying, um, thus my heart was embittered and I was pierced in my kidneys, in my deepest seat of my feelings. He's saying the deepest parts of his mind and his soul in his, in his feelings, he was bitter and he felt stabbed. He was in deep pain and he acknowledges that this brought out the worst in him. I know that I'm tempted that when I, to think that when I go through great suffering that what it will bring out in me is courage or rest in God. In reality, I think it is more likely that I would let myself off the hook 
for reacting poorly to suffering. But Asaph realizes he didn't do the good thing that I think that I might want to do, and he doesn't let himself off the hook. Instead, he says, I was a dumb animal, and I didn't know anything. Rather than God being the one who didn't know anything, it's him. And I wonder, are our confessions of our sin as unflattering as this? What might we learn from rightly seeing our sins before God? For one, confessing our sins and looking to God for help and seeing ourselves rightly in how we've confessed magnifies the miracle of the next verse. And he says, Nevertheless, even though I acted this way, even though I was dumb as an animal before you, you hold my right hand. God is pictured as a father tenderly leading his son carefully through this world and lifting him up from his folly, or as a shepherd who is guiding or leading the foolish sheep Asaph with his counsel. Consider uh, Psalm, the first three verses of Psalm 23, which actually use the same word that's translated guide here. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then Asaph concludes with this amazing promise of, you're going to lead me, you have led me, and you will receive me to glory, even though he was the one who was questioning God. Think about the witness that would have ministered from this to the people of Israel. And yet we have an even greater example for us now. Christ is one who witnessed the wicked prosper. Herod held the kingship that he should have held. Piously, pious, sorry, Pilate callously released Barabbas instead of him. The Pharisees scoffed and spoke with malice against him while they strained out gnats and swallowed camels rather than listening to how Moses pointed to the Christ. He suffered far more than Asaph, and yet without sin or without questioning God or his goodness. He was one who was stricken more than all the day long. He took on the full wrath of God for his people's sins. Listen here to the similarity in language from Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, or the rebuke, that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. While the wicked appear to have shalom, or peace, on this earth, Christ brings the precious peace that we truly need. He brings us the resolution to our greatest problem, which is peace with God. Rather than betraying a generation of children with unfaithful speech, he made it possible for generations of children to be able to call God their father through thick and thin. When we doubt his goodness, he takes hold of our right hand, even as he sits at his father's right hand and tenderly reminds us of his death for even this sin of doubting. Yes, this is but one more sin that I have paid for. And he guides us with the counselor, the Holy Spirit, until we are received into glory in the new heavens and the new earth. Who else can we run to that is standing there with arms open each time we fail, each time we feel weak, 
and each time we are tempted to betray him. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is one of the most powerful statements of faith in the Psalms, perhaps in the whole Bible. Where else can I turn, Lord? The wicked are prospering, their people are abandoning you, and I cannot even trust my own heart at times. It is in these times of desperation that God drives and beckons us to himself and is gracious and good that he does so. One thing that Pastor Steve has said about this um, this series is that it, his goal is not to have us feel guilty about our lack of prayer, but rather that we would be emboldened, that we would hope, and we would want to cast ourselves upon Christ. And I think um, because of this, if you were to memorize a portion of this psalm, I don't think I have to tell you that these verses would be excellent candidates because they are verses that Asaph would have God's people remember in the good times and in the bad. Prosperity is pernicious. It is sneaky. And we can unwittingly go down the path of the wicked earlier in this psalm if we do not have verses like this rooting us, preventing us from thinking too loftily or of thinking and despairing too greatly. And again, this is the benefit of Asaph going into the sanctuary of God because he goes in with God's saints and God's people to encourage him or his word is spoken so that we might hear even when our hearts are fainting. Um, your Bible may have a footnote that the strength of my heart is literally rock of my heart. While Asaph was on slippery ground and almost stumbling, falling on God, caused him to be reminded that God is a rock. While his flesh and heart are weak, he can rely on someone else for strength and support. Is this not our experience? We often cannot muster the strength in ourselves to make it through the circumstances in our lives, and this is by design. God calls us to cast our cares on him and to ask him to be our portion, our inheritance forever. And so implied here is that this is a psalm, or sorry, this psalm is a prayer. Remember the, we see so much of this you and I language. A lot of psalms are written and they're meant for, to say, hey, people of Israel, let's sing this together. Let's encourage one, one another together in this psalm. But much of this psalm is actually directed between God or uh, directed as Asaph speaking directly to God. And he's praying that God would continue to make him content in all circumstances, having the perspective that God works in his ways for his purposes and not on our time frame. We don't actually know that God, and it's probably not true that God just, you know, Asaph walked into the sanctuary and God smote the wicked. Like, that's not, that's not really what happened. It's rather that uh, Asaph learned that appearances can be deceiving. And this is the beauty of how a psalm puts flesh on things that seem like impossible commands in Scripture. Um, I, I had uh, Mike read First uh, Timothy six six through eleven, which, um, as far as you know, what's the bottom line is actually very similar to Psalm seventy three, um, but 
seeing the trials and temptations and real feelings that we experience along the way. And God's great faithfulness in Christ helps us to, that we know that we are forgiven and that he sustains us. So we come to the end of the psalm, Asaph's conclusion um, that, uh, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But, as, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Asaph concludes that there are only two ends for all of mankind. The end for the rebellious and the end for the reliant. Um, the word translated put an end is elsewhere translated destroy or silence. It's a restatement of verses 18 to 20, but it carries with it the additional significance that those who boldly and loudly proclaimed their wickedness will have their mouths stopped by one reason or another when confronted with God's true majesty and judgment. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, may, that knee may be bowed, bent in happy humility and that tongue may proclaim joyfully for those who can say, Christ is my refuge because he is the one who paid for my sins. Or that knee may be done, bowed in fear of the final judgment for those who do not yet confess that Christ is Lord. And so uh, Asaph, in, in some ways, repeats the promise and the warning of the final verse of Psalm 2. Kiss the Son, which we know is Christ, lest he be angry and you perish. Same word as in verse 27. In the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Asaph continues, concludes that it is truly good to be near God because he is the refuge from ruin, he is the protector of the powerless, and he is the loving father who will receive him to glory. And this nearness leads him to do one last thing, tell of all God's works. When the psalm began, it looked as if he would be telling about God's lack of works. But God has brought him from coveting to contentment, he tells what God has done so that the wicked might be brought to repentance, that those struggling might be exhorted, and saints persevering might be encouraged to continue in God's power. And so what, looked, what that looked like for, David, or sorry, for Asaph might differ based on his audience, and it might differ for you based on your experience. But I will leave you with two very simple applications which come from this psalm. Consider how you can pray for God to make verses 25 and 26 increasingly true for you and consider how you might then tell both those who are far from God and those who are near God who both need it equally of his good works. So God is good to his people and it is good to be near him. The prosperity of the wicked may threaten your faith, but God is a rock and a refuge forever. Let's pray. God, whom in heaven do we have but you? God, please help us to make it true that there's nothing in heaven or on earth that we would desire beside you. We know that in our own hearts we are weak and frail 
And so we, we, our heart and flesh, frequently fail, but you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. You've given your Holy Spirit um, to us uh, as a deposit, knowing that Christ, even when we fail, has forgiven us of our sins. And so I pray that you would help us to rest and rejoice in him. We know that um, for those uh, who hope in Christ, if only for this life we can hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And we can see that from this psalm. But we know that Christ has indeed been raised. He sits and intercedes for us at your right hand so we know that we have forgiveness from our sins and we know that death will not have the final answer for us. And so I pray that you would sustain us. I pray that you would give us words to speak to one another, to rebuke and encourage and exhort as is needed so that we might help keep one another pointing to the one who is the rock and refuge forever. So please help us in all these things. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.